0: I do think that after spending a half hour feeling someone's pulse, you can get to know so much about someone. But if you don't mirror that to them and they don't acknowledge it, if they don't feel the connection, then it's not really that helpful.
1: I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I was talking the other day with a lawyer friend who's deep into her 70s. She works because she likes to feel connected. Schmoozing is part of the fun of life. And when you do law, well, you talk to a lot of other people at least if you're like her. She was joking about how she's in assisted living, not because she's in a retirement home, but because she is vividly aware of our human interconnectedness. We grow up here in North America with frontier dreams and an inflated sense of individuality. But the truth is we are all in assisted living. We are thoroughly interwoven and interdependent with each other. Our interconnectedness is our strength. Look at any vibrant ecosystem and you'll see fantastic diversity, complexity, and vibrantly interwoven niches. Interconnectedness and exchange are the signs of an ecosystem's health and resiliency. It's a curiosity of human perception that we see separateness more than unity, that we see the threads of the tapestry of life more than the fabric itself. I suspect of all the creatures on earth, we're the ones that experience loneliness the most. Our sense of a separate self, like the seed that forms a crystal, grows us into beings that first lean on disconnection more than unity. I think my lawyer friend is right. We are all assisted in this life in profound ways. It might be something that we more sense than see, a sense that has us attuned to kinship and connection, along with a friendly relationship with a appreciative vulnerability of how we all truly depend on one another, and how that kinship goes far beyond the world of human connection. We connect to the world with our mind, and also with our heart. In Chinese medicine, the character Xin represents both heart and mind. In today's conversation with Ross Rosen, we explore cognitive thought and embodied sensing, how The system of divergent channels helps us to manage unmanageable influences and how the journey of trauma can leave you more integrated and resilient. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs? is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. Planting trees and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit slash geological to learn how.
2: Hi, folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Meiwei.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so. Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to janeapp switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Cheological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Let's get into this conversation with Ross on Matters of the Heart. Ross Rosen, welcome to Geological.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here.
1: I always enjoy these kinds of conversations. I feel so lucky with the podcast because I get to talk to people I would otherwise never get to talk to. Unless we were like at a conference or we were doing a class or lived in the same town. I used to live in Seattle. I get to hang out with Chinese medicine people all the time. Now I have to do it on the internet.
0: Yeah, that's so nice. I mean, I, as a solo practitioner who's pr- basically practiced in my own practice since graduating, it's always great to have conversations with other practitioners and kind of build more community. It's something I think uh, is lacking in our field.
1: I think it is as well. And I think that is where so much of the learning comes from when you're just hanging out with your buddies and you're like drinking tea and eating cookies and just noodling on stuff. You know, you're know, you not Absolutely. in a class. It's not like everybody's looking at you, oh, they can ask a dumb question or something. You're just hanging out with what you don't know with people that you trust.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I love that too.
1: Me too. So you've been at this a while. What on earth ever drew you to Chinese medicine? I mean, I don't think it was something that as a kid, When people said, hey, Ross, when you grew up, what do you want to be? You probably didn't say acupuncturist.
0: It's funny you say that because I think I did. (laughs) I mean, not necessarily acupuncturist, but I grew up with this just sort of fascination for things Eastern. And my parents tell me that first things I was right when I started speaking, that I was asking to join a martial arts class from being like a really little toddler. They didn't let me do it for years and years and they waited and waited until like I just started asking all the time. And then I think I was age like seven or eight when they let me join in my first class. Back then, oh, it's not like now where there's like a school on every corner. There was like, I lived in Staten Island. There was one school, it was across the entire island. And it was a Korean guy who really was just off the boat. And it was me, my brother and his two sons. And that was the class for many, many months, if not, maybe even more than a year until the school started to build up a little bit. And so Growing up as this, I always mention this, I grew up as a kid watching Kung Fu theater on Saturdays. So you spend your entire Saturdays from one to five, and you're watching all these movies of these amazing martial artists. You see the beautiful mountains in China, you see the robes, and you see the acrobatics, and you see the, the spirit of what is such an intangible thing growing up in the West. And so that was always something that I desired to go At that point, I would say it wasn't even a dream. It was probably more of a fantasy because I didn't even think it. I always think of dreams as something that you can actually sort of think that you can work towards and accomplish. And for me, who knew that as a little kid in Staten Island, New York, that there would be any opportunities to go and learn this sort of stuff. And so I practiced martial arts for years and years throughout grade school, middle school, high school, and then went to college. And I didn't. I I didn't want to go to Western medical school. And so I graduated, went to law school, and I practiced law for three years. And in my office, I I was miserable. I hated it. I mean, I loved law school. I loved learning and I loved theory, right? So it was a a fun experience. But there was something about the mundane practice of it that I guess dispiriting is the only word I can think of. And one day I was behind closed doors in my office during lunch and I was reading the Village Voice and I flipped it open to a page with an advertisement for Pacific College and it was literally like an epiphany light bulb and it was a life-changing moment. From that day I applied, got in, quit my job. It was like a period of like two months now and then just enrolled and that was a new life for me.
1: That's amazing. So I've met so many (laughs) ex-lawyers. Yes. There's this thing in our profession about how so many acupuncturists are not practicing after five years. I wonder what the attrition rate is for lawyers though because I have met so many ex-lawyers. It's just incredible. But that aside, I think it's fascinating that you loved the study of law. You hated the practice.
0: Well, I love theory and I think the practice of law is to some degree devoid from theory where in Chinese medicine, they're the same thing. Right, where it, Chinese medicine is applied philosophy. And I don't think you get that in a lot of other professions.
1: I don't know. I've been at this so long, it's hard to remember what my previous life looked like. I used to do computers mm-hmm. where the focus is practicality. It's like, how do you make this stuff work? And so I guess there are two, theory and practice, were married together. At the end of the day, it's, is this network connection working or not? I guess in a way is true for Chinese medicine as well. Is this channel open or not?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's easy to rely on theory and say to a patient who's still suffering, oh, no, no, theoretically, you're better. (laughs) That doesn't really fly.
1: Well, this to me is why I love the practice so much. Because I can have all these great theories. And I'm a little bit like you. I like a good theory. But man, a theory that doesn't hold water... It's like, well, that's a nice idea, but who cares? So what? Big deal. Absolutely. And with our medicine, the results are right in front of us. Did the theory match reality or not? Because if it's this great theory and this patient who's not being helped, who's right? The patient is right. I think we make a big mistake when we blame our patients for not conforming to the theories.
0: Oh, most definitely. This is a huge topic. And I actually just taught a little class on this for healthy seminars. The title of the class was storytelling and the creation of narratives in the patient practitioner relationship. Because I think this is really, I think, the crux of what we do. We have all of these methodologies and skill sets for diagnostics. But in the end, The diagnosis needs to resonate with our patient, Mm -hmm. right? So when I spend my time on a first visit, I spend about an hour and I would close to 30 minutes of that is feeling the pulse. And so after I feel the pulse and I fill out this entire page, it's, it's a very complex record that I fill out. And then afterwards, I sit across from the patient and I break it down for them. I explain to them all of what's going on energetically, what I'm seeing from the pulse, how that matches up to their symptoms and to their lived experience, and to their past history. And I always have a box of tissues on my desk, and I need to have one there because <laughs> invariably it's that people are pulling them out and they're crying. And you know, as soon as I see those tears flow, or if I see that head nodding up and down, I already know I've established the ganying. You know, that resonance is there, mm-hmm. and I already know that that therapeutic relationship has been initiated. And I think that's a really, really important facet of what we do. And sometimes I talk to patients who are referred from other places or have seen other acupuncturists and then they come in and I say, well, did your practitioner explain your diagnoses to you? Invariably, they say, no, I don't really know. We just talked for a little while and then we jumped into a treatment. And so for me, I think the first step has to be that diagnostic consultation, evaluation, and then the discussion back and forth to create the relationship. And and I think that is the spark of the healing process.
1: Well, you mentioned ganging that. Sense of resonance, and I think it's vitally important. And one of the great challenges that we have as Chinese medicine practitioners is explaining our diagnosis in a way that it can connect with and people can understand it. Because if you just say, "Well, you're damp," yeah, it's just okay, great. That's a weather report, but and now you're being <laughs> weird. Right? I'm not sure I should have walked into this acupuncture clinic anyway. Right? It's just bizarre and it's not helpful. But if you can talk to people in terms of You've got this kind of a digestion, and if you eat these foods, these things tend to happen. And when you have these kinds of emotional experiences, your digestion might get like this or that, and, and the way that you think, there's a certain unclarity. I mean, whatever it is, you can make it connect with a, how a person already knows themselves. And in a sense, because you're already telling them something about who they are, I think they f- end up feeling very seen and very heard.
3: Well,
0: that's the crux of it, right? I think we are so accustomed in our culture to being defined or diagnosed from a blood test or a scan rather than someone touching us and and actually feeling the energetic resonance of what is being expressed from our physiology and our psychology and our spirituality. And then having that mirrored back to the person is really, really powerful.
1: I suspect you get accused of being a psychotherapist all the time. (laughs)
0: we definitely go down that route sometimes. And I think, you know, it's funny. I think there's a weird thing that I think exists in Chinese medicine too, where there's this, I don't know if it's a criticism, but there's definitely a shying away from talking to our patients about some of these deeper issues. And I think it's part of, I don't even know if it needs to be described as part of a medical intervention or relationship. It's just part of two people getting to know each other anyway. And I think that sometimes is missed in the clinical interaction. Sometimes people, I don't wear a white coat when I practice. I mean, I'm in jeans and a t-shirt every day of my entire career. I want people to look at me. No one calls me anything besides Ross. And we need to be seen as just two individuals helping each other along a path. And you know, I don't like to create any type of hierarchy in that relationship where someone feels any stigma about talking about their depression or their anxiety or the fact that they've had this particular trauma in their past or what have you. Because in the end, that really is just a barrier to the healing process anyway. Because if a patient feels like they can't share something with you, that they're like they're putting you up on some pedestal and they think, oh, I I don't want him to look down on me or look bad upon me, that's not helpful in the
1: end. It's not helpful. Well, I think we have this image. I know that I've had it and it's taken me, I wouldn't say I've gotten rid of it. It still knocks around in the back of my mind. But it's that image of the great doctor Who really doesn't say anything. They come in, they kind of look, oh, they've already looked at you. They know 80% of what they need to know, right? Where they feel the pulse. And it's like, okay, I got it. They might ask one or two questions and then they do the miraculous treatment. We have this kind of archetypical image of the doctor who can sense and know at that level. And I mean, maybe there are people that can practice like that. My suspicion is even if you have that level of understanding of what's going on for someone. If you can't connect, at least for us Westerners, I mean, maybe for other cultures, it's different. But for us Westerners, without that sense of feeling a connection with the person you're working with, it's not that helpful.
0: I do think that after spending a half hour feeling someone's pulse, you can get to know so much about someone. But if you don't mirror that to them and they don't acknowledge it, if they don't feel the connection, then it's not really that helpful because if they don't stick around, I mean, what we do is process oriented. I mean, unless someone's coming in with a very acute problem, a lot of what we see is chronic illness and things that require a process and some time to unravel. And so unless someone's willing to invest in that relationship, right, then I don't think it's going to make a difference anyway.
1: So, I know you do a lot of work with pulses and we could probably just jump right into learning some things about pulse. I have found pulse to be a really troublesome aspect of our medicine. You know, it's one of those things I feel like I'm supposed to be a real expert with this because it's so emblematic, right? Chinese medicine, pulse. It just, it's just like a one-to-one correlation. I've got some questions about pulse and, and this comes down to practice as well. A few years ago, I read a book called Clapton's Guitar, and it's a story about this guy named uh, Wayne Henderson. And Wayne Henderson is this dude who lives in Outback, Virginia or something like that, maybe West Virginia, and he is a master guitar maker. People wait 10 years to get a guitar from this dude. They're very expensive guitars. The book is called Clapton's Guitar. Eric Clapton put in an order for like two guitars. It took 10 years to get his guitars, right? (laughs)
0: He didn't get bumped up to the front of the line,
1: huh? No, because this guy just like, he just does his thing and makes magical instruments. And so there's a place in the book where somebody else is talking about this Wayne Henderson dude and his skill and like who he is, because he's just this guy who's like living life and kind of makes guitars on the side. And there was a question about what goes into making a great guitar. And this is somebody talking about Wayne Henderson. This is not Wayne talking about himself, somebody talking about him. They're saying, well, there's about 600 really important things you have to pay attention to, but the most important part of making a guitar is the mind of the guitar maker as they're making the guitar. I remember reading that and thinking, oh, that reminds me of working in clinic. And with that thought in mind, because we can talk about the technicalities of a pulse forever, but what I'm curious about is hearing about the mind of the practitioner as they're taking the pulse.
0: That story reminds me of, you know, the Cook Ding story from uh, Zhuangzi. It's very similar, right? It's like you have to, the more you practice, the more skill you develop, the more, or the less resistance you have to kind of moving through the terrain. And I think it's a similar process. I remember taking my first Pulse courses and feeling so insecure because you come back and you spend a weekend and the amount of information that you learn is very overwhelming. But more so than that, you leave, And now you're not with your teacher anymore. And now you're in your practice and you question everything, right? Am I feeling what I'm supposed to be feeling? Is this what that was? In the Shenhammer system, we have 90 discrete qualities and sensations that we feel, but no one quality ever presents itself in isolation. So, when you're feeling a rough quality and a slippery quality and a tense quality and a reduced substance quality, they're happening at the same time. So, you have to know the quality so well that you can actually parse out which is which from the overall tenor of what you're feeling. And so, it gets very, very complicated. And so, you start to question a lot. And then the more you kind of resonate that back to the patient, the more you see that your diagnostics match what is happening with the patient's signs and other symptoms, And the more that the treatments that you do affect change, the more confidence you gather. And then the next time you start to trust more and more. And then eventually you start to let go of that analytical brain where you're trying to question too much and you just allow the flood of information to hit the fingertips and then write down on the record and piece of paper. And then eventually as you're doing this even years later, it's all happening simultaneously. So you're feeling it. There's no barrier between the sensation and your fingertip and the writing and the interpretation and the analysis. It all starts to like piece together in this very syncretic way where you, all, that, all that information is being utilized simultaneously so that after you finish filling out this record after 25, 30 minutes, you can now sit across from the patient and like reveal everything that you're feeling and the complexities and how how that ties into their history and their early life and their parents' history and all different signs and symptoms and the entire ideological presentation of what you're experiencing. It's quite interesting, but it does take time and you have to kind of sit through that process and be patient and know that that's sort of the doubt that creeps in and all those things. Doubt is like It's a pathogen. It's a virus that can grow and and embed itself deep within the fibers unless you kind of like uh, eradicate it and don't let it permeate.
1: Yes, you use that phrase, less resistance to moving through the terrain, which really got my attention. It's like, what terrain? What resistance? Why is there resistance? And if I'm following what you're talking about here, this resistance comes from that we've got these mental models. We've got an idea. Should I be feeling this? Should I be feeling that? Which of these 90 characteristics is it using a very discerning analytical mind? That's one piece and necessary. At the same time, there's the other piece of just what am I feeling in synchrony with everything else and those two things are not separate. They're actually happening simultaneously. The question is, or maybe it's not a question, maybe the practice is how to inhabit those simultaneously.
0: Right, exactly. There's even a third terrain you can mix into there, which is the actual physicality of the artery and the connective tissue that you're pushing through and all of those other dynamics. So it is tricky. I always recall this one student, he was actually a student in a class I took. He was a, an older gentleman. We were going through the different pulse positions and I was feeling, I was demonstrating on him the left distal position, which is found very differently in the Shenhammer approach than it is in, in other systems. Because we have to kind of roll our finger under the scaphoid bone and kind of catch the turbulence as the radial artery splits. And then that, that sensation kind of comes back at us. And so it's not just feeling the sun position is, is quite different in that. And I remember feeling his left distal position and he had a lot going on there. He, so we started talking about, I started describing this, the signs and the qualities and, and giving some ideas about what this might mean and so forth. And he didn't really say much. So I was like, huh, that's kind of weird. Like he's, he's not really giving me any feedback here. The weekend ended, I drove home, and the next morning, I wake up to an email from him thanking me for explaining what was going on in his pulse. Apparently, he had some very chronic heart issue that had been, the Western treatments have not been working for some whatever reason. I can't remember the, the, the specific nature of what it was, but he said to me that the presence of me feeling that particular position, he was feeling so much happening inside his chest. He couldn't even respond to the questions i was asking because he was caught up in the sensations of what was going on he he said he almost like felt me inside his heart and he woke up the next day and his symptoms had kind of resolved now i don't know how if it was a a final resolution or whatever but he had significant change symptomatically we talk about in the Shenhammer approach you know diagnosis and treatment are married together. It's part of that blending of energetics that we can't really explain so much from the logical mind, but it's so embedded, I think, in what we do. And so the terrain even at that point is all one. Those three different aspects that we just enumerated, they kind of obliterate to some degree and they just kind of meld and merge into one terrain that we navigate and inhabit at the same time.
3: It's at com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the Jump to Free Teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at annsecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
1: And the investigation and the treatment have a sort of unity within that terrain. Yes. yes. I remember in acupuncture school, having some Japanese acupuncture teachers, I think to a person would say, as you're doing your palpatory diagnosis, you're also treating. You have to understand that as you're investigating what's going on for somebody, that doesn't happen in isolation. The person is responding to your inquiry. The inquiry itself is part of what's going on. So you have to be a little bit careful in your inquiry that it doesn't, influence because it will influence. But like you were just saying, that kind of a connection, when you're paying attention to somebody, we're back to gogging in a way. It's impossible not to have something come back.
0: Yeah, I mean the observer and the observed are constantly influencing each other. One of the things I remember, this is something that Jeffrey UN spoke about a lot in the pulse training that I did with him, was that there are certain things that we are constantly and intentionally doing with the pulse too. So if we're feeling a pulse that is rapid, we can kind of put that intention to see if we can slow that pulse down and see what happens as it changes or does it change. If it does change, we know that it's more of this kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word superficial, but it's definitely more of a functional mm. aspect. And if it's not changing, or it's it's changing very in very minor ways, or if we can't affect any substantial difference, then it may be more of an organic problem. So we can sort of distinguish different layers of subtlety and functionality based off of the intentionality of what we ask this radial artery and this person's being as we're feeling it and as we're kind of m- melding our energetics together. It's an interesting thing.
1: Yeah, so there's a certain level of being able to attend, use our attention in attending and then monitoring to see if what kind of changes come from that or not. That's also very useful information. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. And especially when we look at things like the directionality of pulses, like there's certain, in this classical model of pulse, we pump our fingers in different ways to see if, you know, if we want to see is the liver blood being sent up to the heart to transform into heart qi? Is the spleen ascending to the lung? Is the lung able to diffuse its qi? And so there's particular ways of pumping and moving the fingers to see if we can initiate that type of change. And sometimes it's not happening on its own. And sometimes we can add some of our own intention to see if we can get it to happen. Sometimes we can actually speak to the patient and engender certain types of emotional responses that change and affect the pulse to see what's going on there too. So there's, there's so many different ways of diagnosing from that perspective.
1: I'm intrigued with the I'm not even sure how to put it into words. So when we start talking about these different terrains that use both our right and left hemispheres of our brain, language kind of breaks down in a way. So when you're teaching pulses, how do you work with that particular dynamic? Because in a sense, you're trying to transmit something that is beyond language, and yet we still need to use language. Right,
0: yeah. And I think this is, if we're talking specifically, I'll just talk about the Shenhammer approach first, because I think the way that he's done a brilliant job in making it teachable, that does need to be teachable in sort of smaller group settings, at least in the beginning, at least the palpatory parts. I have seminars online where I teach all the didactic and theoretical components. But the first thing is you have to create framework you have to create a lens a model it's much like a martial art form in the beginning you learn the form specifically the way it's taught and then eventually you sort of make it your own and then maybe if in real life circumstances that becomes a part of you and you adapt it to whatever circumstance you need you learn the form to master the form to forget the form and i think that's very true with pulse. You have to learn the specific positions. You have to learn the qualities and what they feel like. And then you can start to see the subtleties within. And I think qualities in the Shenhammer system on a scale of one to five, right? One being sort of minor level and a five being like, it's going to slap you in the face. It's like really, really strong. And so within that gradation, there's so much subtlety. Feeling a pulse that is a rough vibration at a one versus a five, or the way that rough vibration of a one combines itself with some type of underlying slippery pulse and how that needs to be adapted to the particular circumstance of this patient's history and what they're presenting with and all these things. It starts to, you need to get fluid with it. And in some degrees, I mean, I I do think you need to be creative with it and you need to be sort of, Creative within an orthodoxy. I don't, because you don't want to be like completely heterodox and pulling one thing from one system and one thing from another system. You need to understand the systems from their own merits, and then you can see the synergies and the overlaps, which is, you know, sort of what I did with, you know, my textbook, Heart Shock, which was understanding trauma from a perspective of the Shen Hammer lineage. And then bridging all of the understandings from classical Chinese medicine and my, my studies with Jeffrey for the past couple of decades into that model and to see the overlaps and to see how not only do they overlap, but they inform each other and they make each system stronger as a result, right? It's like a there's the one plus one doesn't equal two. It's, it's equaling three at that point.
1: Yes. I have heard so many people talk about this and especially people that are masterful in different domains of the medicine not to mention their their own unique way of combining them but to a person they have all said if you're learning a particular system if you're learning a particular method learn the method learn the form learn how to use it within its own methodology so to speak and learn it well like to the point where you can start playing jazz with it yeah and then and then you can take another system that you know equally as well and, and then you can start to see how they go together. But if you start with that in the beginning, it's just a mess.
0: Yeah, it gets, it's just mishmash after a while.
1: Yeah, it's just like a child's finger painting.
0: Yeah, and you can't create and one of the things that we want to be able to sort of do to the best of our abilities and with this understanding that we can never fully attain this is to create some degree of reliability, right? That's really, we want to know that when I feel X, Y, and Z, on the pulse, this treatment is going to make some change, right? Because I, it doesn't matter what that, if that treatment is coming from the same system that diagnosed, as long as they're synergistic, they should still work. So if you feel someone, these rough vibrating pulses and all these different diagnostics from the Shen-Hammer lineage, and I apply a divergent channel approach from the classical model, it should still make the same change as if I'm doing the same treatments that Dr. Hammer would have done or Dr. Shen would have done.
1: So you just said divergent channel, and I would love to dig into that a little bit because divergent channel, it's one of those things that I remember in school being exposed to and having no idea what they were talking about. And I was so focused on just trying to learn, learn the regular 12 channels that I was like, yeah, okay, one of these days I'm, I'm going to go learn that or study that. Yeah. And then you don't hear much about it once you get out in practice. I mean, on occasion you hear about it. I know Chip Chase... I think with Mikishima did a book, and, and there's some stuff from Jeffrey Uren, and, and I talked with David Euler recently. But when it comes to divergent channels, I feel like I am a ranked beginner. I don't even know how to think about using these. I mean, honestly, I've got enough of a passing understanding to know it's a part of what we do. Yeah. But man, I could use an operating manual or at least a how to get started thinking about it. So I'd love to get your thoughts on the divergent channels.
0: Sure. Well, first of all, I I do want to mention this. a lot of people don't know this about my book. So my sense was that if I'm going to give treatments based on a particular channel system, that I needed to create that sort of understanding of what the channel system energetics are all about. So in part two of my book, every chapter, which discusses a particular channel system, right? Sinews, low, divergent, eight extras, and so forth. I start off that chapter with the first 30 or 40 pages giving just an, a complete overview of what those channel systems do. Because I think to understand the treatment, you have to understand this, the energetics. So that's all contained within the book for people who, who are interested in them. And, and that's specifically from the approach that I learned from Jeffrey Ewan. So that's that model that I'm presenting there. But the divergent channels are really fascinating. I think they're particularly useful in our day and age when we are constantly being confronted by a slew of external, all these different things that come into our system from the external world, whether it be allergens or toxins or whatever it is, traumas even. Six
1: o'clock news.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, the divergence R is a certain paradigm that helps one to understand the impact from the way level to the UN level, mm. right? And so it's something that, and we don't really talk a lot about the, the ying level in divergence, although there is some overlap in there. But basically what you're looking at is a system that helps to create latency in the body. And so if we're exposed to particular pathogens that either we are not able to handle, otherwise occupied doing other things, and those pathogens start to kind of move towards the interior, towards the primary channel systems, and they start to confront that Wei Qi and, and so forth, we need some type of system to translocate, to protect the organs. So it translocates pathogens away from the channels and the organs themselves, into a state of latency. And that's usually done in places that are sort of bony cavities, right? Teeth, sinus, hip joint, shoulder joints, and so forth to create a state of latency. And the body in its wisdom does so the the Wei Qi kind of is embroiled with this conflict. And so it takes it and then we create some type of resource that is going to come along with the Wei Qi and the pathogen and envelop it and dampen it in some way to keep it quiet. And so there's a particular priority that we have in the body or a certain stage. So the first thing that happens is the first confluent of divergent channels tend to come. And again, this is, there's a textbook way, and then there's a way based on everyone's constitution, right? depending on one's resources and so forth. But basically, the jing is going to come up and take that and try and encapsulate this pathogen and waychi embroiled in this conflict and move it somewhere. And, it's going to, and if it's successful, it can be in latency for a very long period of time and you wouldn't even know about it, right? There's no signs. There's no symptoms. It's in a state of complete quietude. If, for some reason, if you think about those resources as sort of like, I always think of it, the liver is like the general, right? So it kind of depends on, decides where our resources go and what troops go where. And so if we take 100,000 troops and we move it over here, and now it's fighting in this war, but of course, every war has particular casualties to it, and eventually our resources start to diminish. And so what can happen there is one of two things. Either we go to the next level of confluent, which would be the liver gallbladder. And we're going to take blood and go and support that and convert into something that will help maintain that state of latency the longer. If we don't have enough resources, then that pathogen and the Weichi, which now is sort of like, anything goes internal transforms into heat and Weichi is a hot substance anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's warmth there. And so that starts to come back out of latency and the first place. And then we start to see inflammatory processes happen. And eventually that starts to attack things like the bowels, and then eventually it would be the Zong organs and so forth. And so autoimmune issues, right? These are divergent channel types of issues that we see. And so the question then becomes, do we have enough resources to do either one of two things? Either keep putting something in latency in perpetuity, or... Do we have enough resources and enough integrity to actually eliminate something from the system? Mm -hmm. And there's different ways of doing that and different needling techniques and ways of kind of bringing things in latency or clearing them. And all the different, the six levels of confluences each deal with a different sort of resource to maintain that state of latency or help clear.
1: So it would be an effective and appropriate treatment strategy to keep it in latency. That might be a fine thing to do. You could just go to your grave with that. So what big deal? Or there might be an opportunity to bring it back out. Just depends on the person, the circumstance, the strength of the pathogen, the weakness of the gene.
0: Exactly. And herein lies one of the biggest problems I think that practitioners face. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of theory versus clinic. Because everyone wants a pathogen cleared. No one wants it to be in their bodies, right? A patient comes in with cancer and they say, I want the cancer gone. And so you – may say all right let's get this to clear but of course we need to understand well does the pulse tell us are there resources for it what's the integrity of this person's uh, physiology what allowed for the development of this cancer in the first place to kind of go unchecked and so what happens if you try to clear someone who doesn't have the integrity to clear you create chaos. Mm-hmm. And in fact, with, and with cancer, you create metastatic problems and you can really shorten the person's lifespan and create a very significant disease process that runs rampant through the system. And in many ways, that can be from you're opening up Pandora's box, right? And you don't know what else is in there if you're going to clear and where is the integrity? And this happens, we see this a lot, even in Western medicine, when they don't understand which patients should get chemo and which shouldn't, right? If you don't tailor that to someone's physiology and what, their, what resources they have, oftentimes we can see the speeding up of one's demise.
1: I think we have this predilection here in our Western culture, psychologically speaking, that anything that's unconscious should be made conscious, right? Especially if you're like a fan of Jung, who I am, by the way. There's all this shadow stuff and you're going to live a better life and a healthier life and a more embodied life if you take the shadow and you bring it to consciousness. What I think I'm hearing from you is that there are sleeping dogs that you should just let lie.
0: That's a complicated question. And so in some sense, yes, I think you have to be mindful of resources. And again, and I don't even think it's always our decision necessarily to let sleeping dogs lie. I think this is part of the resonance and this is part of these discussions that have to happen with our patients. A lot of times when I'm seeing cancer patients, typically that what I find is that there's empty pulses and a lot of instability. And so I have to have this conversation. And I actually see this a lot with fertility patients too. Mm -hmm. When you see these empty pulses and instability, and the discussion is sometimes a very tricky one because you have to navigate with no judgment, just explaining what you're finding, that there is a certain state of insecurity that is happening physiologically, that if you were to get pregnant right now, there's a risk factor here that we can minimize if we take three months to solidify what we need to solidify and stabilize. And I give the example of the difference between biological age and chronological age. We can kind of do some magic there. And with cancer, the same thing. Sometimes we have to say, listen, what we need to do is quiet this down. We need to build you up. We need to strengthen you before you go and do chemo or before you go and do a surgery or before you do, you know, and I don't tell them what to do. I just give them my opinion about these things from what I'm feeling. And that sometimes delaying a, a small period of time can make all the difference in in the outcome for someone in terms of longevity in terms of whatever other clinical goal they have but in terms of awareness i think it's there's clearly some certain people who don't who aren't there yet don't have a certain capacity to be aware of certain things and that's why they're latent and other people have a certain willingness to want to go there. And I think the work can be done with those people. And I think, and also some of this blends in with some of the work I do as a Taoist priest too. And I think there's overlap here and you have to be mindful of people's karma. You have to be mindful of people's perceptions about some of these things and how much you want to move. You're never trying to push. Sometimes you can just kind of prod and see and see where people are at. But I think we never push, we never force anything.
1: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing Well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico Needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico Needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, unless you want to feel like you're being a good doctor and you're fixing your patients, I think we often we will push, we will force, we may be are not being helpful because we're looking for a result to boost up our own egos. And of course, when people's knee pain or whatever goes away, they're going to be happy and, and hopefully send people to us. So, there, yes, there's this middle path somewhere. I sometimes wonder in helping people with a short-term problem if I'm not setting them up for a longer-term issue.
0: Yeah, that's huge. And that's why I always want to make sure, even if someone's coming in for like an acute twisted knee or something, I want to do a pulse on them because I want to see. The last thing I want to do is patch someone up temporarily so they can really go hurt themselves. Exactly, That's always something in the back of my mind. And that's even part of what I think about in terms of fertility. It's part of, do I want, this patient to get pregnant too soon and then have a miscarriage or or have some problem happen with developmental stages during gestation or these things weigh on me and I think we have to feel comfortable with our interventions and to do that we have to be honest with our patients and go and explain in detail what some of the ramifications of what we do can mean.
1: We often have to think about doing no harm and that is not a simple thing to parse out
0: Yeah, it gets super complicated because we don't have that crystal ball.
1: No, we don't. No, I mean, we've got some things that help us. I think we got a flashlight. We got a compass. We have some guiding stars. We have all of that. I think the ways that our medicine allows us to open our senses can be very useful. You know, we're talking about terrain earlier. You know, we have some ways of navigating terrain. We can talk to a woman who is working out every single day, maybe twice a day. And is a vegetarian, and like blood deficient is crazy, and and we'll be able to say to her, well, you just don't have enough material to grow a child right now. You might consider less activity. We can see that deficiency underlying the excess of that activity. It's so one of the beautiful things about the medicine, is we get these these ways of navigating these landscapes in kind of a stereoscopic way.
0: No, for sure, that's one of the things about. Our medicine, which is really quite brilliant, is we can understand the past, where they were, and by diagnosing what we're seeing in the present, we can be sort of predictive about certain things that are going to happen without treatment, right, where they could go. And especially with the pulse, right, because the pulse, there's a lag time on the pulse, which is really a quite of a a lucky, beautiful thing that we can feel certain things on the pulse that have not yet manifested, Mm -hmm. right? That there's because we're feeling process and we can feel both, right? So we can feel the process, but we could also feel an accumulation of an aggregation of tissue. We can feel tumors. We can feel things that are like stones and and those sorts of things. But by knowing the process, we get a a clearer sense of where things are going to start to move. We have the ability to intervene along that process, which is great. Yes. I don't think a lot of other medicines have that necessarily, which is really a wonderful thing.
1: I think with conventional medicine, there are certain lab tests that will show a propensity to moving in a certain direction. But often I hear patients say, I've been to my Western doc and they said, yeah, I can't help you right now. Come back when it's worse.
0: Yeah, I see that all the time.
1: And we do have something, you know, we have lenses and filters that help us to see what's happening now and make an intervention a little earlier along. I want to switch topics just a little bit. You mentioned heart shock a few moments ago, and and I know you've done some work with shock and trauma and all that. It seems like, I'm using air quotes here, trauma-based or trauma-informed medicine is becoming a very popular thing. A lot of people are looking at trauma uh, in ways that we never looked at it five years ago. And one of the things that I'm curious about with trauma, I don't know if you have any insight on this. But one of the things that I'm curious about is there is trauma that really injures people in ways that their growth is stunted or in ways that they become like, I'm dating myself here, like, you know, one of those old 33 and a third long playing albums where you'd have a skip. And their trauma, it's like they've got a skip in their life. They keep repeating the same thing over and over And I think it's very easy to look at all, you know, PTSD, there's all kinds of ways that trauma causes mischief. I don't need to enumerate all of them, but the thing that I'm curious about is how it is that sometimes trauma does not weaken people, but it makes them stronger, more resilient, and kind of anti-fragile.
0: Yeah, that is such an awesome question. I love that question because that's really at the heart of what the book is about. And you know, I'm coming in October. I think I'm teaching a little class on heart shock in the treatment of existential crises. Because I think there's a few things that happen with trauma. And when I'm talking about heart shock, I also want to be clear that I'm talking about trauma that has risen to a particular level to be what we would consider to be like a systemic block. Of treatment. It's something that has created a a sequela of movement energetically where there's sort of a deterioration that takes place internally from multiple systems being impacted and a certain degree of instability that ensues. It can be just the broken arm depending on the fragility of the person, the constitution, and so forth. But our goal as practitioners, I think, is not just to make someone or whole or whatever that even means, right? It's not to return them to their pre-traumatic state. Mm. It's really to help them process and move on, whatever that looks like. And that could look like very different things. One of the examples that I often give is you can imagine you have this twenty something female and she's like this very like gregarious sort of fire person social and she's out and she's seeing her friends and she's on her way home from a party one night makes a wrong turn and walks down an alley maybe that she shouldn't have walked down. And there's some major trauma that happens here. All of a sudden, Moving forward, she's no longer this fire, gregarious, social, fun-loving person. She becomes quite watery and fearful. The world is now a scary place rather than a place to enjoy oneself, and so this creates a particular change to the dissemination of yunqi and the triple burner mechanisms and so forth in terms of how is her physiology and her psychology being nourished from that point forward, and so. The job is not to say, okay, let's undo that and make her this fire person again because she's always going to have that trauma. You're not going to eliminate the trauma. One of the things that Dr. Hammer has said over and over again is that in the treatment of trauma, we don't take their traumas away. We dilute them, right? We help them process them and perceive them differently so they can move on in their lives as a person who has had that experience who can now transcend that experience. And so one of, in my book, I detail primary treatment strategies, secondary and tertiary and so forth. But one of the primary strategies is opening the orifices and the portals. And what that really means is changing perception. Mm -hmm. We have to switch the perception of what has happened. And I talk a lot about E. hexagram 51 in the textbook too, which is the thunder hexagram. The phrasing, I'm going to butcher it, of course, but it's something like when thunder strikes, we kind of shake and shiver and the alarm is sound. And then afterwards, we kind of laugh and so we can kind of create ease at the end this idea is that we know that thunder is this sort of intervention and it can be a corrective intervention too right so we use that so in my Taoist lineages we which is thunder medicine we actually use thunder as a healing mechanism but from the side of trauma that thunder can be seen as some type of whether it be a karmic event or some. something to go into that but it's some intervention that impacts the course of one's life from that moment on. And so how do we learn to handle all of these different types of external events? One of the main ways is by changing our internal perceptive capacities, right? And so that's really at the heart of what we're looking to do. So we can nourish things and we can invigorate things and, and so forth and undo some of the stuckness. But if one is not managing how one perceives themselves their life prior to trauma and what their life looks like after trauma then you don't really ever get to a place of resolution i don't think or transcendence which is really what we're looking for and i don't mean that in in some like huge enlightenment state i just mean like the ability to move on with life and to process things accordingly we all experience traumas in our lives and we can get stuck in them very easily and if we're not careful
1: well you've answered my question that i've been noodling on which is how is it and why is it that sometimes people come out more resilient. And what I'm hearing you say is it's not because you're going backwards to where you were. And I know that there are medical traditions that say that. It's like you got to get back to this original thing. We're going to clear this thing. You're going to go back to who you were. No, you're not going back to who you were. You will never go back to who you were. Uh, Sabina Wilms talks about bianhua change, and that in the old Chinese, bien is like a small evolutionary step and Hua is a dramatic revolutionary step. So the kind of changes that you're talking about like with the young woman, the fire type young woman here, she experienced a Hua type change. There is no going back from a Hua type change. You can only go through it. You can only digest it, compost it. And here's the thing and this is where I think the resiliency comes from because you were talking about her as being a basic fire type personality. And now she's turned into a water person. If you can bring that fire and water together both in balance, whoa, right? Now now the Shaoyan access is really lit up and potent and resilient and resourceful.
0: Perfectly stated. Exactly right. That's our goals is to create those connections again and the awareness Allow, to allow for those things to even develop in the first place.
1: So you talked about opening the orifices, which is, I mean, one of the things I love about our medicine is we have these pithy little quotes that make you go, hmm, that sounds about right. And then the next question is, well, how the hell do you do that? So when you think about opening the orifices to help people change their perspective on themselves and their experience, what are some of the things you're thinking about and what are some of the things that you do?
0: this is multifaceted i think first and foremost it's talking with our patients we have to walk them through some of these things and show them where they're getting stuck right and give them options right if you become very tunnel vision you know this is one of the reasons why i love even the idea and metaphor of thunder right thunder is associated to the east and the gallbladder mm-hmm. right and the gallbladder deals well, is the whole side of our bodies gallbladder one on the side of our eye, it helps us with peripheral vision. It helps us to not have that tunnel vision of we're only looking at one thing. We have to see greater and grander perspectives. And so part of that comes in clinical interactions with patients, right? Kind of talking about some of these things and explaining. It's not uncommon for patients to have things that come up in the middle of treatments to have dreams or have thoughts and old memories or what have you. And so helping them process some of these things or processing someone like, for example, maybe this person now has to go out to a party and I mean, the water person who has to go out to a party and we need to like figure out what's a good strategy for navigating some of these things so that they're not just like, you know, completely introverted and they're aware, but not hypervigilant and all these things that help them understand the safety of can be created sort of, and but also not feeling like one has to create excessive control because we can't control things anyway. So that's one thing. you know. And then with acupuncture, we have lots of possibilities in terms of channel systems. Like, one of the things I love about the diversion channels, which we were talking about before, is there's lots of points around the eyes. Mm-hmm. So bladder one is an upper confluent point for the, the stomach as well as the heart right? Diversion channels. It's gallbladder one is the upper confluent for that gallbladder liver um, confluent. So these are things that are important. We use things like window of the sky points and all these different types of things, maybe even gene well points to really clear some of this stuff out. And then of course, you know, herbally, we can look at some of these Sher Changpu and the Yuangers and Eugene and some of these things that and I, and I go through a lot of this in, in the book and I list the herbs and the acupuncture points that follow under each particular strategy so people can understand the thought process and the combinations of what we're looking to accomplish. But I think you can't just rely, and then essential oils too, I think are really wonderful because the aromatic nature of them goes right into the brain. It alters consciousness very quickly. You can change mood and psychology in in very quick ways using oils on acupuncture points and so forth. But I think you always want to get around all of that out with some clinical interaction. not just going to go in there and do a point, don't say anything, and then leave and expect this to magically happen.
1: Yes, I would agree that there is something about that clinical interaction. And the way that I think about it in my work is that sometimes something gets said in the room. Sometimes I'm the one who says it. Something just pops into my mind and I say it. Sometimes it's the patient who says it. Sometimes it's me just reflecting back what the patient said. That's often the way it is. Helping people hear what they're saying, but they haven't actually heard. But there's something in that interaction of speaking and listening that sometimes is more potent than any acupuncture point I've run across.
0: Yeah, I agree. I just had a patient the other day, she's a long-haul COVID patient who's been suffering from a lot of other things for years and it really created a trauma for her, just the whole how her body has changed and her health and so forth. And then what she said to me as I was leaving the other day was she said, the few sessions that we've had over the past couple of weeks have been more altering than Decades of therapy, (laughs) so I thought that was really interesting. And and we're not doing therapy in the room. Like I'm not saying I'm I'm not a therapist. I'm not sitting there and psychoanalyzing patients. I'm mirroring back. I'm creating that resonance. I'm explaining the energetics of what they're experiencing, so they can understand how it's connected to their experience. Because oftentimes you go to a doctor and you have with these big symptoms, and they say, "Oh, it's anxious. It's anxiety. You're just nervous." I'm like, "Yeah, but psychos." somatics is not this evil term. It's all psychosomatics. Our mind, our spirit all have implications on how we feel physically and and what happens in our bodies. And so having sometimes just explaining some of that can be just wildly relaxing to a patient and affirming to their own experiences.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I have people talk about how they're depressed and they have been since their mother died which was three months ago, and to be able to say, well, actually, you're supposed to be a little depressed right now. Actually, would you want to be the kind of person who wasn't missing your mom right now? And to be able to normalize yeah, what actually is a normal process can be really helpful. And I think the other thing where we can be so helpful, and it's something that you mentioned earlier in this conversation, is we can help people to have the capacity and the resources to take on what needs to be taken on, to be able to hear what they haven't been able to hear but now they're capable of hearing, um, and to be witnessed in the moments that unfolding.
0: That's hugely important, and I will also say that the converse of that is important. Sometimes you have patients who have particular health issues that do not allow them to keep up with everyone else, and sometimes when you are able to palpate the pulse and say, you know what, you don't have the resources right now, and all—it's so freeing that people don't have to feel like failures. They're trying to do something that they really can't do, and it doesn't mean they won't ever be able to do it. You may be able to work and build and so forth, but to know that they can take a little bit of a break—it's this idea of you know advance or retreat. Sometimes you advance when you have the resources. If you don't, you have to go back internally and build that back. For you know, sometimes you got to save it for a future.
1: Well, that sounds like sons of bingfa acupuncture. Maybe uh, fodder for another conversation. well ross this has been an absolute delight having a chance to hang out with you and noodle over these if people are looking for you on the internet where would they find you
0: yeah, so they can find me at centerforacupuncture.com is the clinic website. RossRosen.com is kind of more of my teaching website, which is under construction a little bit. And I'm on Facebook. I have a heart shock group and a Shen Hammer group. And with my Taoist brothers, you can find us at uh, Parting Clouds Taoist Education. So yeah, thanks. I can't believe an hour has gone by. It feels like I've been talking for like a minute.
1: Well, two friends hanging out over Chinese medicine, the time does indeed fly. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: I've been curious for a long time on how it is that difficult and traumatic experiences sometimes leave people stronger and more anti-fragile. This conversation with Ross gave me a glimpse into how that can be so and how our medicine contains the possibility not just of healing but also of growth. We never go back to where we were, but we can move forward with a kind of strength that comes from digesting experience in a way that makes us more vital. This conversation left me optimistic about the possibilities that can arise from healing and connection. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation,